I often say that addiction is the result of not knowing how to find safety inside of yourself. So you find it in something else and understandably you get hooked on it because you're desperate for safety. That's all you're guilty of. Any of you looking to learn more about supporting addiction recovery through a trauma-informed and somatic lens and a nutritional lens, please join me for my addiction circle. This is a bi-monthly, entirely free, virtual circle that I invite anyone here to come and join if they want more information. Addiction tends to be so steeped in shame, and I find that doing this work in a community of people helps to destigmatize that shame so you can see how not alone you are in the experience. So whether you are personally withdrawing, preventing, experiencing relapse, or you work with people who are actively addicted or in recovery, all are welcome. The next addiction circle is Tuesday, July 2nd at 4 p.m. EDT. This meeting is not recorded for the sake of anonymity. No registration is necessary. Just join through the link below. What does pornography addiction and trauma have to do with one another? We talk all about it on today's episode. I was so accustomed to treating myself, any tense situation, um, I needed to end and go use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then at, at its worst, it was like, it was also a reward. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I'm your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now. Benjamin Obler is a writer, editor, and teacher. He wrote the novel Java Scotia from Penguin Book UK. His short story, The White Man's Incredulity, Furrows His Brow, won the short fiction prize with Puerto del Sol in 2015. His essays have appeared in The Guardian, Long Reads, Electric Literature, and The Times of London. Ben is an author and an educator, and um, I would just say wonderful person who I've had the great pleasure of working with in the past. And I invited him on to this podcast to share his experience with pornography addiction. And through his experience, I'm hoping to destigmatize it so some of us can learn how to heal it versus feel shackled by the shame of it. Addiction to pornography is a direct response from relational trauma. 
growing up, whether it's a sexual trauma, whether it's an emotional trauma, something happens in the relational field, some kind of a rupture. Very often, if it's a man, it's between a man and a man. But I've worked with men where the rupture is also between men and women. I've worked with women that have pornography addiction, much less so than men, but it exists. So I don't want to make this um, a gendered um, theme or topic. I want to make it a topic that explains the mechanism that develops into porn addiction from trauma. And so the the piece that is most clear to me is there is a... Actually, let me back up. Let me explain uh, something very simple with trauma. Trauma is the response in the body to an event that's overwhelming. So somewhere in your life, somewhere in our lives, we feel threat. We experience threat. We are threatened. And we have a trauma response. Now, when we have a trauma response, that's a healthy body response to help you survive a situation that may seem life-threatening to you. And it doesn't matter if it is life-threatening. It doesn't matter if it isn't. It just has to seem life-threatening. That's enough for the body to turn on and have a trauma response. That's the fight, flight, fawn, or freeze responses. Now, what turns that response off is something very simple. It's called regulation. And so when we regulate, our blood pressure goes down, our heart rate returns to normal, we breathe much more deeper, we take in our surroundings, so our tunnel vision goes away. We feel like, okay, I survived, I'm safe, everything's okay now. There's this cycle that happens throughout childhood and our our developmental years called rupture and repair, which means something overwhelming happens, there's a rupture, and then following the rupture very shortly after there's a repair. And that simply looks like someone holding safe space for you, someone holding, um, literally holding you, emotionally holding you, witnessing you, creating safe space for you to recover from the rupture. So in this story that you're going to hear today from my guest Ben, as well as the countless stories I've heard from other men uh, and women and anyone in between or non-binary is to really understand that these these responses, okay, come from not having enough repair. So when you are growing up with the ruptures and there isn't the repair, we do something very um, intuitive called auto-regulate, okay? It's a for, it's essentially just means self-soothing. So in the repair, normally there'd be a co-regulation. You would co-regulate with somebody. Very often a parent or a teacher, it could be a pet, it could be plants, it could be uh, going outside into the forest. But as children, we look to our elders for that, the people in charge of us. So when we have an issue, we come to them with the issue, or if the issue happens with them, they help us come down from it. They help us feel safe from it. And in that moment of co-regulation, the body says, okay, the trauma response can go away because there's no more threat. In the case that Ben experienced and what he he shared today in the conversation is he experienced many different relational traumas with his male peers, with the men possibly in his family, with the men that he grew up with. And in that rupture was a sense of, I don't belong here. This is uncomfortable. I don't feel safe. I don't feel seen. I'm not enough. And that little experience of I'm not enough or I don't belong here or this isn't safe, that becomes a somatic experience. So it might be a thought or a belief, but it becomes somaticized. 
the body clenches around that. And then the body experiences threat, especially in relation to people. So being with other human beings and being vulnerable doesn't feel like an option. So someone like Ben and many of us will auto-regulate. And one of the easiest ways to auto-regulate is through pornography. Because you're taking in visuals that bring a rush to the body. And if you think about those, those trauma responses, particularly the freeze and the fawn response, freeze and fawn are two responses that uh, very, I see they primarily pop up in relational ruptures. If you don't feel like you're enough, if you feel abandoned, if you don't feel like you belong, you're going to have a freeze or a fawn response much quicker than you're going to have a fight or a flight. You know, flight might come in there because you want to get away from the situation. But often there's a lot of freeze happening. And for Ben, I wanted his story to be, to be shared here because he is a uh, sensitive, um, I would say very masculine, feminine, balanced man who's very tender, very uh, intelligent, and very, very kind. And that's the kind of man that you don't think of when you think of someone with a pornography addiction. We have our own stigmas and identities and uh, stereotypes for those kind of men or people. But Ben is a bit different. And because he had that sensitivity, his body is much more likely to go into a freeze response. So if you're in a freeze response because you're around other men you don't feel safe with, or you don't feel measured up to, and then you go home and you're by yourself, when you're watching pornography, your body is getting a rush of hormones, which are actually waking you up out of that freeze response. So there's a physiological, what seems like a physiological benefit at first when you take in stimuli. Same is true for video games. Same is true for television. These are ways we can stimulate our bodies out of that depressive freeze response. And so for Ben to be stimulated out of that with pornography and then actually pleased, you know, coming to orgasm, then the whole body experience regulation, right? This is auto-regulation. This is one way we auto-regulate, which again just means self-soothing. Instead of co-regulate, be with other people, we isolate and we find ways or substances to feel safe with ourselves in isolation. So Ben developed through his, his teenage years auto-regulating with pornography. And then when he got into his 20s, pornography became very easy to access because of the internet. So he found himself compulsively using. And it didn't become a problem or he didn't realize it was a problem until he was actively trying to avoid his wife and his friends and his partners and even possibly life opportunities because it felt much more comfortable to isolate and watch porn. The piece here we have to destigmatize or uncouple is porn equals bad or porn equals perverted or porn equals disgusting or even porn equals sexuality because it, it doesn't. Porn is one of the many ways the body finds safety. It, it creates a predictable, isolated, comfortable situation where the body can feel pleasure, guaranteed pleasure, without any rejection. And if a human being is prioritizing pornography over human connection, that tells you that that human being has endured 
a significant amount of relational trauma and abandonment and rejection to the point of it being so overwhelming that they'd rather isolate and watch pornography than enjoy the experience of courting someone or even possibly being rejected or possibly being accepted. The concept of being their whole self with someone, showing what they want, showing what they need, showing who they are, and that person accepting or rejecting it, the idea of that is so threatening to the system of someone who who has relational traumas and ruptures that they'd rather isolate. So I want us to, as we go into this episode, to release the ideas you've had of pornography and really hear the dynamics and the mechanisms, okay? The, the, The word safety, the word regulation, the word isolation, fear of rejection, if you're listening to this and you, you've experienced or are experiencing a pornography addiction yourself or you have a partner that is or was, it's also important to know that it's not a personal thing. So if you're the other, if you're the partner witnessing your partner going through this, their porn addiction has nothing to do with you. It's not because you're not a good lover. It's not because you're not handsome or beautiful. It's simply because they have an extreme fear of rejection And their bodies did not develop with enough consistent, predictable co-regulation to feel safe being vulnerable with you. That has everything to do with them and very little to do with you. What has anything to do with you is the story you're telling yourself about yourself or about them because of their addiction. The best thing you could do is notice in your own body, what do you need from them to feel safe? What are your requests? What does this bring up for you? What gets triggered when your partner watches porn or when you know they have a porn addiction or a porn problem, let's say? That trigger, what comes up for you, that's really important work for you to work on while your partner works on theirs. Because as long as we're showing up to each other with honesty and love and uh, communication, uh, everything else is personal. Everything else is the individual's journey. And if your journey feels oppressed by your partner's addiction to pornography, you have every right to say you need a different journey. So let's go into this and just start to understand a little more about how something like addiction to pornography, how it gets created in the first place, and how my next guest found the way, his own way, to work through it as well as speak out about it and heal some of the shame that before just served to feed the ongoing cycle of the addiction. And I want to thank you for being here, Ben. Thank you, Luis. It's a pleasure to be here. And I I first want to say that I'm... um, I respect you for coming on and speaking because it's a topic that there's so much shame around speaking about. And so I actually first want to ask you in real time, like, how do you feel right now even speaking about it? (laughs) Great question and a great way to kind of start our talk since the time that we spent together was often kind of led that way, right? Um, I do feel uh, a little bit nervous and apprehensive, but also eager to connect with you um, about this, you know, because... 
um, it's a great opportunity to bring this topic out in the open, but um, I'm also really curious to hear some reflections from you about, you know, what I've been through, because I have a way of conceptualizing it that I've been thinking about in anticipation of today, but I know you have really keen insights on things, so that should be interesting. Yeah. Well, before that, I'll start with you just to hear a little more about your story. And I'm, yeah. what I'm curious about, what I, where I want your story to begin is not actually the beginning, but more like the juice in the middle. Mm-hmm. Like what, how for you did sex and porn addiction manifest in your life? What was that like? Um, yeah, it manifested in the form of, you know, there's different ways it can be characterized, but chronic compulsive sexual behavior acting out um with internet pornography was really the prime object there um so yeah i remember well you know when basically when the internet came around like one of the first things i did was you get that free aol cd for like first it was 100 hours free try it out (laughs) then the discs were like 500 hours free you know they would mail them to you you could get them at the checkout counter at Barnes and Noble. And I have a thousand hours free on AOL. See if you like it, you know? Mm-hmm. And as basically as soon as I could get a digital image on my computer, that was just like what I was drawn to. Actually, there's a funny story where the very first laptop I had um, and the very first time I accessed the internet uh, with a university account, it was work related. <laughs> I was working at a at a magazine that was based in the university. It said, "Well, here's your account. Get online." And there's this thing called Yahoo. And I was like, "Okay, that sounds cool." And I got online, and I uh, it was a it was a pre VGA monitor. Mm. It was a graphics only monitor. So I searched for porn. I was like, "I can't see any pictures." On this. <laughs> uh, so that was disappointing. But, like, to answer your question, how it manifests was, like, very relatively quickly, I would say, a slide into just self-medicating. Of course, you know, when I say that now, I didn't think of it that way then. It It was something that was the norm for me. You know, because of the environment I grew up in, the, the models, you might say, that I saw. So it was just a part of my life. It was just like something that you do for fun, like you have a mm-hmm. hobby. Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, people play cards when they get together with friends. And to me, it was like, uh, you know, men look at porn. That's mm-hmm. what they do. And so as soon as it became so available, like it just, the use became uh rampant just really habitual and before that really brought about any crisis um you know there were years where it was like this is great computers are getting faster the internet's getting faster the resolution's getting higher you know i'm making more money to devote for computer hardware and like just a real investment in this activity and Mm -hmm. 
I want to pause you there because it's yeah. like so good for people to hear that. Um, because it speaks to two things. It speaks to what why it's called an addiction. First of all, you know that that your life and your time and your energy and your money was being funneled into that. First of all, mm-hmm. like that was your priority. But it also speaks to the safe space it created. And obviously, in the moment, that wasn't your like you said your awareness until you did work later on that. But I think that's the piece that I really want people to get from our discussion today, and they they will as we speak about it more. Mm-hmm. But just that that investment wasn't just like so so you can get off. It's an investment in feeling safe. And what do you want to say about that? Yeah, that's an interesting one because when I think about where I was living at the time that it, that it really took off and the internet became a feature of life, a studio apartment living by myself, you know, two bedrooms, living room, dining room kind of thing, small space, and then me inside with the computer and basically like I go out and go to work. Um, I didn't feel, you know, socially maladapted at the time. I just felt like this is what I do. And, um, but it was, I was, there's definitely, that's where the isolation began. And again, that's a term that is applied in retrospect that I learned to identify later, Mm -hmm. but I did start making choices then to, I remember I had a girlfriend and like, she loved to go to live music. Let's go to the caboose. Let's go to first Ave. Let's go to the 400 bar and see this band. I'd be like, "Mm." I don't love that band. And yeah, I remember that, that recurring feeling of like, I can be here by myself or out with people that I don't know, a band I don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of uncertainty here. I know I'm going to have pleasure Mm -hmm. and I'll be in control of this whole situation. And I think that was a big factor. And people who follow my work in this podcast know that that pleasure is just another word for regulation. Mm-hmm. So there's this, it's a, it's a regulating, it's actually, it would be referred to as auto-regulation. Mm-hmm. There's self-regulation where you find safety in your own body. And there's co-regulation where you find safety in other living beings and people. And auto-regulation where you find safety in isolation with some kind of activity. Yeah. So that's an auto-regulating activity. Right. And I, 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 I'm curious when you said about like, oh, this is what men do. Like, what are your earliest, um, I would, I'm not even examples, but observations or experiences of men regulating their stress with sex, with porn and isolation before the internet even. I'm curious what that was like for you. Peers, you know, whatever that was, however that came Yeah. Out. I mean, I always, that just makes me think of, in here I'm leaping around a bit, but like when I did get into recovery groups and uh, men's groups in a clinical environment, almost 95, you know, hundred percent of the men I met, dozens of men, it was always, of course, there's always this learned behavior from fathers. That's a real fixture, I think. Um, And when, as soon as I say that, I want to add like, not necessarily because of the fathers themselves. I mean, we men learn from men, women learn from women, um, children learn from parents in a way that is just healthy and natural. But, so when I say that as a source, it's just like, of course, in some sense. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I observe just so much of like men who have porn around. Um, but also a lot of precedent was set, I think, in social settings, you know, sexist jokes, you know, putting down women mm-hmm. as just like a, a way that some men kind of seek common ground and understanding. Like, let me let me throw this dirty joke out and see if where that lands with you. And if I get a signal that it's a double thumbs up on both sides, like we we have something in common. Um, which I always found a bit alarming. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Like something seemed off about that mm-hmm. to me. Well, those, from are, those are the interesting. That's that's one of the ways that men actually co-regulate, even though mm-hmm. it's you know not the healthiest. Mm-hmm. But there is that feeling of you know I'm safe if I agree with this or if I can say this if I can do this. Right. 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 It's belonging. Uh huh. How was that for you? Um, it was, um, it was strange, uh, slightly frightening, I think at times, um, because there's something a little two-faced about it too. Like, you know, men wouldn't outright insult or make sexist remarks in front of other women, but then they'd get alone and, and letting those fly, mm. um, seemed duplicitous and like oh we're supposed to behave one way around women and then you know which is which is our our real selves (laughs) do we pretend that we like women and here we actually you know resent them um it was just clear that there was some deceit going on there either in front of the women or in amongst men Mm -hmm. um so I found it confusing. <laughs> what did you do with that confusion? Um, did you take it to anybody? Did you isolate with that? Like, where did you go with that? I think I, that's, that's such a good question because I think the honest answer is probably that for a long time, I tried to fit in. Um, or tried to understand it more deeply, tried to make myself align with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I remember at a young age reading, quote unquote, reading, you know, men's magazines, um, seeing the cartoons, you know, there's like a woman in a short skirt and heels on a street corner and, you know, a man is there and there's some caption and just, I don't know that I'm not, I'm not a terribly precocious person, but like, um, just studying the ethos of, of everything that was put forward in a Playboy or a penthouse mm-hmm. and, and trying to find ways that where I could access that and, and like mimic it and like step into it in a way that I, that I could work with, like, um, and I suppose I was a bit of a blank slate. I was not fully formed yet at that mm-hmm. young age. So there was there was some room for that. But something in you didn't feel authentic. Like I'm hearing no. through these stories, like even though it was all you knew, it didn't right. feel yeah. good. Yeah. No, I felt terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I wonder, like that feeling of feeling terrible, like that pain it caused in you. 
if that pain was something that was just pressed down because you didn't have an embodiment practice or if the pain was acted out through the usage or if the pain, you know, I'm curious, like, where does that pain go for a young man going into puberty? And that's all he knows. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have an answer for that. I mean, I think it, it gets suppressed um, perhaps you know, expressed through kind of teenage angst. Mm -hmm. Maybe for me that was in the electric guitar, (laughs) um, sports or whatever. Um, But it certainly, it doesn't, it didn't find a healthy expression for a long time. Um, But I think the other thing I did to answer your question about like how I worked with this information I was getting about the world um, and this ties into really the big picture of my relationship with this addiction. Um, I think I was also kind of true to myself in ways where, you know, I didn't step into these aggressive or sexist male behaviors all that easily. I remember, um, and I suffered the consequences at times. I remember in being a sixth grader and kind of being ousted from the social set that I was in. Uh, on my male friends and the, as as best as I can re- remember as best as I can trace it might have really been based around the fact that when Michael Jackson's thriller came out like I liked the music and I think I got some penny loafers and I was working on the moon lock in front of my <laughs> and like the next thing I know I'm at school and the boys are yelling Ben is gay Ben is gay I'm like I'm what I'm not a homosexual, like I've had crushes on girls since first grade, but um, that seemed to be like an, another one of the messages, like like you betray mm. this masculine code mm-hmm. and you're mm-hmm. out, you know? Totally. And this that's what you mean, when, sorry, that's what you meant when you said about suffering consequences. Yeah, yeah. And, and there was some repetition of that type of thing you know, later in high school, even in college, um, where I just, I never quite felt I fit in. Mm -hmm. I didn't have quite the masculine identity that some people were looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know, I mean, a clinician from the outside might put it a little differently. Like I continued to meet opposition and maybe backed away from it and chose isolation, but Whatever the case, like, um, I think across my life has just been trying to trying to work with it on my own um, and find like the right balance of how to incorporate what's expected of me as a man and, and be true to myself and a lot of hit and miss. Well, now when we have that whole experience of this like confused masculine identity and then you're not following in the misogyny Mm -hmm. and then you're being kind of ousted and and treated really poorly and called names and not really feeling like you fit in through most of your young development, I'm hearing. Um, How did that, how did that inner environment show up in the physical world in a, a sexual relationship with a woman? What was that like? Oh, Luis, you're so on the money all the time. <laughs> this is why you're thriving at what you do. 
Um, it definitely, it definitely manifests directly. I think like I, uh, I think there was a real fear of rejection in relationships in general. Um, and so I, and I think to some extent that continues as to this day where uh, if I meet someone new, some someone I like, some people I'm attracted to, um, I tend to assume like they don't like me. They don't, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, my default is like, I need to prove myself to them, but I'm also looking for a sign and indication that I'm invited in. Mm-hmm. It's okay to show myself. Um, you know, that's such a tough one that, and that's a tough one for me to see clearly as being myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether it's just a natural, uh, you're an introvert or you're uh, you're kind of cerebral person or something versus no, I'm actually like pretty traumatized. And I love that you say that because um, that's something I'm always <clears throat> talking about with individuals and groups around uh, trauma versus the identity around trauma. Like mm-hmm. we, we think, or rather authenticity versus a trauma identity. So it's like, is it authentic if, if you say I'm an introvert, right? How authentic is that versus introversion, the response of being traumatized? Mm-hmm. And the, the really clear way to find that out is, is, is the, what the body's doing. Like if there's tension and charge, it's a stress or trauma response. If it's like open and peaceful, you're in the flow. So if you think about like, if we think about the early days, let's start go back there. Mm-hmm. of dating, having sex, courting a woman, all those like rites of passages, you know, for a yeah. man. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, <laughs> I can see your face here, but I'm laughing at it. Go ahead. Do you want the explicit stories? Or the, no. Oh, go as deep as you want to, my friend. Um, no, I think there's a lot of indications. This is work that I've done and some recovery um, programs where you look back on that and I feel like the signs are pretty strong that there's a lot of instances of well there's a person I like you know so I I call this girl and start talking to her and like she shows no interest and you know I, I give up then that's normal but I think there's a lot of cases where oh hey Ben so-and-so likes you and then I go thumbs up I'm going to work with that and just start dating this person. Like they might not necessarily be a great fit for me. I don't know them. I don't have any particular interest in them, but I find out they like me. And so I go with that. Um, I think that was a theme for a while. That was a theme. Mm. So you weren't even interested or attracted, but there was a sense of like, here's somebody who likes me. I'm going to attach to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm curious then, where did it, did it in those early years, were you able to feel, not really jumping here, but going into a deeper, like more personal experience, like the safety you felt when you're watching or using porn, were you able to feel that same amount of pleasure and safety and openness with human beings? Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? Well... <laughs> That's a that's an interesting one. I mean, tracing those two lines, I didn't 
it's hard it's hard to say i mean i you know i began sexual relationships as a high schooler and had um through college and they seemed you know reasonably normal sexually to me um i had you know i had begun looking at porn as early as you know 14 years old or something so i don't know that i was really sexually dysfunctional and in, in sexual relationships until later hmm. what told you uh, you were later what was the thing that came up that said this is a problem well really like in my mid-20s when the internet comes out and then i really start you know using porn so much that it's like why that i'm losing interest in having sexual relationships because it's like kind of so second, that's what rate, I was curious second about. rate yeah yeah that's what i was really interested in so that, that was more like in your mid-20s when it was more yeah. accessible to you right got it and yeah. when you when you look back on that right now as we're saying that with your n- newfound you know embodiment practices mm-hmm. can you when you say second rate is that because of a level of safety and ease yeah i think that's part of it definitely um definitely safety and ease ease probably most of all um and here I'm drawing on again work that I did in a clinical environment where you really analyze all this. So I'm not necessarily recollecting it, but recollecting the work I've done where, yeah, part of the uh, really irresistibility of porn is that the 100% guaranteed satisfaction rate, you know, and the zero, uh, there's zero negotiation, you know, like you have with a human partner. Mm-hmm. You have to discuss anything. You have to woo. You don't have to make dinner or have conversation. <laughs> um, What's interesting? So what I think I'm sorry. There's there's something important there for me. Like uh-huh. when you say negotiate negotiation, I think it's so that's so important to hear because some people might hear that as as like oh god, men are so lazy. Um, I hear that as men are so insecure. And I don't even want to yeah. say men. I just want to say anyone who uses because yeah. that's important. Like the negotiation means I might get rejected, right? That's really what it comes down pre- to. Pre- very, very precisely for me anyway. And I think for many uh, porn addicts, um, it, as silly as it might sound to some from the outside, it's like the the potential that you step forward as a person, as a sexual person, person present yourself you know make your overture and for some reason it's turned down Mm. like the prospect of that is just painful and i suppose there you start to get into maybe more psychoanalytical ideas around the way that the porn addict identifies with themselves as a a sexual self and, Mm -hmm. and you know ideas of worth and value enter in. That's the piece that means a lot to me is the worth. Mm-hmm. Because when you're sharing, um, like growing up in male peers are just, you know, it's very normal to have stacks of porn or using porn. And then you go into middle school, high school, you're getting made fun of for being maybe more feminine or being more sensitive or not calling a woman, you know, a, a derogatory term. You're not man enough. And that all these things are developing in you as this kind of identity of your own, of how you see yourself. 
and that's somewhere being compared to something else, then you're falling short in your mind. And then the porn is born from that, right? Right. And then you have this extra ingredient, a huge topic of shame, really, which before we even talk about that word, but this extra ingredient in this equation of of using porn for sex, sex versus having healthy sexual relationship. In this negotiation idea, you also have this ingredient of um, the knowledge within the porn user themselves of what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. And this, um, if there's shame there, it's also like, well, I'm also trying to overcome, you know, the feelings that when, when you start to lose control, as an addict, um, you have this kind of increasingly unsure footing mm-hmm. about yourself, right? Like you may not want to be doing it as much as you are, but you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so now you feel even more insecure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that's the, the word is people hear that word insecure. And earlier when you were talking about investing in hardware and I was saying it's investing in safety essentially, it's mm-hmm. like the security and the safety, those are so symbiotic. You know, so if you lack security, you really lack a safe feeling in your body. And when we're not embodied, we don't even know we don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. We just have all these behaviors and identities that are born from trying to feel safe. Right. You know, and so when you're talking about that, is that, that seems really clear yeah. to me. Um, I want to bring up uh, uh, the memoir I wrote about this experience. Um, because I remember writing a passage in there in a certain chapter that was really detailing what I had become that really speaks to the way, like, I had become a bit unrecognizable to myself as an addict when I, you know, I had this corporate job. I'm in this cube farm for a big company. Um, and here's an English major. Um, with a BA in creative writing, a master's creative writing, um, and a lot of editorial experience. And I I spent so much time. I had created an account at Newegg.com. That's a computer hardware specialist site. Really for gamers and other PC enthusiasts. If you want to build your own tower, a screaming gaming machine, that's the place to get your hardware and make sure that it... Um, And I had a profile there and I had like saved all these items. Like when I may, you know, when I get enough money, this is the machine I'm going to build. And so I kind of masqueraded as a computing, a computer enthusiast. Like I would love to have this so I could put Adobe Creative Suite on it and do my own layouts and, uh, you know, publish a website that supports my professional work. But really, like the idea of this just became so large in my mind. Like I would keep up to date on the latest CPUs and memory specifications, how to do water cooling for a CPU, you know, all this stuff that like, I became aware slowly that my interest in this was not exactly legitimate. It was just Mm -hmm. off somehow. Mm -hmm. But the, the idea of this dream machine was so appealing to me you know mm-hmm. in ways that i couldn't really put my finger on i was just like this is what i want to do 
Uh, and to me, it was, really was the idea of having this thing that would guarantee mm-hmm. the performance, <laughs> the mm-hmm. delivery of dreams and dreams of and pouring what, this. Well, but but that's where what made that so aware for you? Like you're you're lost in this self deception of this dream machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's real intention is, you know, for porn use and the perfection and like you said, mm-hmm. the delivery and the safety and such. Really predictability is the word I keep hearing. And I'm curious for you, it's it's like, um, when did that become apparent that, oh, this is actually not good for me? Well... What shifted? It became, I suppose, like there's this huge gulf of space occupied by denial between like... And on one side is all this activity. Like, I would love to have this really fast computer. On the other side is like evidence of estrangement between me. At this point, I was married. Um, by, by the time I, it was a few years into heavy, heavy porn use when I got married. And so, also, really a lot of evidence of struggles to connect and increasing desire to like not do things with my partner and here she is you know naturally expecting that like we you know do things together on the weekend uh right and you know more more guilt more shame more secretive behaviors you know it's like using on the sly and not not being honest about it and being unhappy about those failures and those frustrations in the relationship and all that stress and anxiety, the fights, mm-hmm. the tears, the anger, the confusion, um, talking about porn happened a few times and it just was uh, a huge source. I mean, it's beyond the source spot, like something that I was not able to communicate about. I didn't understand fully. And I was also really protective of. Mm-hmm. And so what happened to break down this like this understanding or come to an understanding of what I was really seeking in that computer it was just like a, a gradual facing of the music and realizing that like, okay, there's a connection here <laughs> between what I want that's inexplicable to me in mm-hmm. some ways. And also the obvious failures of interpersonal things. Uh, and that took years in itself to, to grapple with and to actually start to work with. So that gap between denial and usage was something that got smaller over time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like mm-hmm. this huge up moment happened and you awakened right. to it. It was right. like really gradual. Yes. And by the time I did get into a treatment program, I remember like, quote unquote, waking up in that environment and being like, yeah, gosh, I guess I did. I tried to quit once and I realized I couldn't go longer than two days without any. Uh, And then I tried again, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just completely shrouded in either denial or just, you know, not able to face it and really deal with it for many years, mm-hmm. for at least 
six, eight, eight years, perhaps. Well, that's where, that's where for me, when I think of like relational trauma, um, you know, which if you want to, if you have any, you can identify and you want to touch on your, you're able to, you already touched on some just around men in Mm -hmm. general, that's like a relational trauma. But, you know, for most, most people who have porn addiction, the, the relational traumas are what drive them, right? Because the body doesn't feel safe with another body. So it's not going to open up as much and want to connect. Whereas, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, if you, if you auto-regulated throughout development, then your body expects that to be the way you soothe and find safety and regulation. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're at this point as an adult, you're married and you're finding yourself like trying to get out of situations of connection with her, because mm-hmm. the way you know how to connect is through porn, like to yourself, to feel that safety, not not deep connection, of course, but like a, a sense of self and a sense of sturdiness is what any addiction does. It props us up for a moment because it regulates us temporarily. Right. You have to have to dip in to get that regulation. So what was life like when you let go of that regulator? What did it, what did your body feel like? Like what did you how did you deal with that? Oh Lord. When I let go of the porn, yeah. Oh man, yeah. The there were serious withdrawal effects. Mm. Like what? Um, and this, you know, we learned about this on a scientific level at first. The all the brain chemicals that I was accustomed to being on at elevated levels. So moodiness, headaches, irritability, you know, loss of. Uh, concentration, <laughs> uh, tension, anxiety. Uh, I remember realizing, like, I had this joke with my wife. You know, it was a running joke that, oh, Ben doesn't love to shop, right? That's Ben's personality. He's not a shopper. Um, so, you know, if you need to get groceries together, like make it short and sweet, make a list and don't subject him to more shopping than he can do. Honestly, it, it was just like, I was so accustomed to treating myself, any tense situation um, I needed to end and go use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then at, at its worst, it was like, it was also a reward. It was so it was like you're having a bad time, use porn. You're having a good time, use porn. You've done something, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that speaks uh, that that experience there speaks to the non-duality of charge to the traumatized system. Because mm-hmm. the, the rush of happiness or the rush of pain and fear is a charge. And when you have a traumatized system, that charge throws you off. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. So I like that you brought that in. That's important for people to hear. Yeah. So I was uh, definitely the withdrawal was massive. Um, how long was it? The symptoms? Yeah, like how long would a withdrawal symptom last, assuming you didn't use, you know, how long would it go before you balanced? Um, I was just, I was looking back to my memoir in prep for this conversation and I saw one where, you know, early stages of treatment and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not using. And, uh, <laughs> there's a funny passage where I talked about what I did that day. I was like, well, um, I started doing laundry. I basically organized all the linen closets. 
Uh, it was winter. This was in Minneapolis. Uh, took out the trash and recycling. And then I saw some that the driveway was covered in ice and I grabbed the ice chipper and I'm out there and I like chipped every bit of ice up <laughs> the whole back alley, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and kept myself busy for like five hours. But I think in, certainly for the initial weeks and probably a couple months, it was like, unless I did something, if I sat down and rested, it'd be like, my brain would just be, hey, mm -hmm, hey, mm -hmm, good time for, let's go back to. Yeah. Like any amount of space, I'm assuming, would mm -hmm. want to get filled with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, and it sounds really awful, and like painting a, a one-sided picture. At the same time, like there was a growing, kind of blossoming uh, bit of integrity, mm. which was something to really enjoy. And say, like, hey, I'm in control of myself here. Like, mm -hmm. I got through that. And that became a reward system. It's like, okay, well, maybe I can endure this. Um, so there I really was a love positive, that. Yeah, yeah, I love that because the 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 thing that makes the thing that makes the auto regulation of sexual pleasure different than, let's say, drinking alcohol or snorting cocaine, you know, whatever other ways people do it, watching TV for hours, it's this it's this like usage of the body itself, like everything else, like you're taking in something. You know, mm -hmm. and you are with porn too. Obviously, there's a visual you're taking in which is stimulating you. But the way you get the regulation is through the orgasm. So there's this like manipulation of your physical body to mm -hmm. get to that 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 chemical release of which is highly regulating after you have the high, because then you come down. But to not be doing that to your body means you're literally building like what you call integrity. It is, but I, I call it building the capacity. You know, you're literally noticing there's this deeper capacity for you to be with yourself. Right. And that's something you didn't get during development because you didn't have those wise men, you know, carrying you through those rites of passages. Yeah. You had porn, yeah. right? Porn and peers. Uh -huh. You also had porn. So it was like this <laughs> big trauma bond, it sounds like. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, to paint... I mean, it's paint the fuller picture. Okay, we have some brutal withdrawal and change of habits. It's very challenging. Took a lot of deliberate work and support from other people, which I had, blessedly. Um, I wouldn't say all my adjustments were the healthiest. Like, I think I substituted adrenaline a bit. I started playing tennis and uh, probably took that to extremes at times where, you know, most people would go go play a match for play two sets for two hours or something and i would be there for five hours <laughs> totally yeah yeah uh, like you just said using that adrenaline which is really appropriate yeah. to say yeah so it was a mix mm -hmm. but then what, but, what point did you say i'm gonna write a memoir um well, to, to speak chronologically um, and share a bit about what I did exactly, like uh, my first treatment was at a clinical program at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, uh, a program at the Center for Sexual Health for Compulsive Sexual Behavior, and it was a men's group. And I was in that for 12 months, two-hour meetings, 7.30 a.m. on a Tuesday, every Tuesday for 12 months, uh, as well as work 
you know, outside of those meeting hours mm -hmm. where you're writing about your sexual history, thinking about your behaviors, you know, doing worksheets. How are you going to manage this? What are you going to, what choices are you going to change? How are you going to be accountable? Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of stuff like that. Um, and after that group, um, then I started attending SAA, Sex Addicts Anonymous, which is a 12-step based recovery program in a community close to home. And um, which I really see as like the second half of a, of a total treatment program for me, like the clinical scientific approach was great. It was marvelous. The spiritual component completed the picture for me as well as brought all these wonderful men and a sponsor into my life who did this amazing thing of hearing stories of all of the the worst stuff I did, quote unquote worst stuff, how bad I had been as an addict and sat there and heard me and said, we love you, man. Mm. You know, which what wasn't the, like, what was that oh, like? Oh gosh, it was a revelation, you know, because I think primarily because it was something that the addict doesn't do for himself. I've, I've changed a person here. It's something that I wasn't doing for myself saying, I love you, even though, even though you've been doing this for so many years and out of control and it's kind of wrecked relationships. And um, so to have, you know, guys who had, who understood this is pretty crucial too who understood about the behaviors and maybe their behaviors had been more extreme or you know varied or but they were informed people mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so to have them say we see you you know it's really about being seen mm -hmm. and not rejected mm -hmm. which <laughs> is pretty what we talked about exactly, exactly. yeah in a beautiful way, it's like such the it's such the obvious thing that's needed, but it's very profound to actually have it there in the real world. These people who mm -hmm. you you meet, they're strangers to you, and then mm -hmm. after a few months, when you do your step work, that includes the horrific step five of like sharing everything, and to be met with the most unlikeliest thing there of having them just meet your eyes and not even flinch when you're like, then I did this, which destroyed this relationship. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yep, mm -hmm. we're capable of that. And that's okay. You're going you're gonna to live on. See, that's that repair right there for that relational rupture. We talked about earlier, you know, the, all those relational ruptures with men. Mm -hmm. And here you are in a circle of men speaking something that to you is the worst, most shameful thing in the world. And you're met with unconditional love. Yeah, what a great term, relational rupture. I hadn't really thought of it this way, but, you know, it's like, it's like uh, we were saying earlier how if, if in, a social circle, in a social circle a man doesn't kind of denigrate a woman or make fun of them or et cetera, and they're rejected, you know, really what you're doing in your 12-step work in an SAA group is saying, I don't, I want to go on denigrating women and objectifying women and saying my sexual pleasure is the only important thing in my life. 
and in anybody or to anybody, um, that's a key factor in why these relationships fail. It's because it's a, mm. the sexual obsessive component, the sexual selfishness component. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying the inverse of that. And you're saying, I don't want this. And then it's accepted, right? Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's like the medicine you need. Yeah. It's really nice. Then how, yeah. how long from that point then till you said, I'm going to go public with this and write about it? Right. Thank you for giving me back. Um, so I was in that 12-step group for, I think, approaching two years. And then I moved away from the Twin Cities, Minnesota, came here to New York um, and continued to participate in other groups. And then within a year so that kind of professionally, I had the opportunity to devote time to a new book manuscript. And so on the calendar, this was 2015, where I drafted this manuscript and it took about a year. This is recent. The yeah. Yeah. You and I, very nice. I think met shortly after that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Because that, that's, I think, you know, and I'll, I'll talk more about um, where people can find it and stuff at the end. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what, that's why I chose to have you on over, you know, the thousands of men with porn addiction um, that could have asked to come on. Because um, I know you and I love you and you're, you, you have this sensitive uh, tenderness that opposes the stigma most people have of like a man addicted to porn. So I thought it was really mm-hmm. important that people could meet you that way, like yeah. the tender part of you. And I'm obsessed with how people turn their trauma into wisdom. I'm just obs- <laughs> like, it's my obsession in this lifetime. And so to go through all that and then to write a memoir, so you've exposed yourself further, which shows how much work you've done on yourself, that you can do that. Right. Right. So that other people can be helped. That's just so beautiful. Like, what? Well, well, I want to know. We only have a little bit of time. Yeah. I want to know what that process was like. Like, <laughs> re, like doing readings or signings or people. Like, what was it like to write that and expose it? Well, it is all those things you say, um, but it's it, it was very challenging. Um, the memoir is not published, to be clear, and really, the act of. Uh, working with the finished manuscript was kind of a revisitation to the rejection stories. But Mm -hmm. what happened first was uh, I I published an essay in longreads.com, a pretty well-known website, um, talking about my porn experience. And then something really crazy happened. Um, An editor with the Times of London magazine uh so i should say the times of london newspaper and she was an editor with their sunday supplement like the literary supplement she said hey i saw that long reads piece i'd love to you say more so i i published a second essay about my experience with porn in the london times and then it got syndicated like the uh, the guardian uh the mirror mm-hmm. um and it was somewhat uh and it was not at all subtle. Like when they republished, it was like author. <laughs> it was like author uses porn for 20 years and wants to tell about it. You know, that's my picture right at the top. Oh, amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. But, oh, shame excavation. Wow. Well, it was so far from where I started because I remember walking into the Center for Sexual Health and like on my first day, 
and filling out the form. And, and at that point I had a novel out with Penguin and I was teaching at a public place in Minneapolis. And I thought, this is it, I'm ruined. My public mm-hmm. reputation, you know, like, I was so rooted in shame. It's like people, mm-hmm. it's such a delusion to think people knew me broadly <laughs> or any, there would be any outcome. But I never would have dreamed that at that point that I would have chosen to. Um, and in fact, really that first essay at Long Range was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bridge this divide between, I, I, for a long time, I tried to cultivate Ben Obler, you know, published novelists and I won some awards with short stories and I had other pieces out there, but I didn't at that point in 2016, I had no discussion of pornography addiction in my professional profile anywhere. And I thought, you know what, what do I have to lose? Um, I'm just going to bridge these two and, and kind of integrate here and stop trying to, to shield this part of myself off. Mm -hmm. And, um, as far as the memoir, like that was brutal because I sent it to 90 or so agents and um, it didn't get picked up. Agents for the, the large part, like I can't sell this. I can't sell this to a publisher. Publishers will not want to take this on and sell it. Because of the content? I think, I think that's part of it. Um, it's, a, it's a few factors. Um, I don't think it's because of the quality. <laughs> I like to assure myself of that. <laughs> I'm sure too. Not all my insecurities are gone. But I, I did have agents say, boy, this is better written than 90% of the stuff that comes across my desk. However, I can't sell it. I think uh, there's a couple things. One, the heyday of the memoir has perhaps passed. And so that there have already been memoirs about, you know, people hitting rock bottom in the multitude of ways. And um, publishing is a very trend-driven empire. And so, one, um, I wasn't on the cusp of the wave there, and that's fine. But I think also, too, um, shout out to my friend Dave who says that, also, too, uh, I think it's around the, the issue. Like, I think they envision a limited audience of male readers who would want to look at pornography use from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that's certainly a factor. I think you're probably right. And it's even, it's why I want to do this episode. Mm-hmm. And cause I really want to bridge the gap between the stigma and how it's yeah. seen yeah. and, and the reality of what the humans experience is. Who, yeah. And who to be, to be completely fair to the publishing world, um, I think too that my work falls between the cracks a little where I'm not a clinical psychologist, I'm not Patrick Carnes, I'm not a front runner in the industry of sex addiction recovery, I'm not a therapist, etc. So if they want a nonfiction title from an expert who can speak to it in a clinical way or, or some other way in a self-help realm, that's one thing. And mine is a, kind of a creative work Mm-hmm. I, did, I did some inventive things in terms of its form. So it's like a literary memoir. It's a story. Well, for me, though, it's even more important than it getting published is that you did it. Yeah. Because we have these things in our lives, right? Like where we do something. Like I have it a lot when I make a, a music record. Mm-hmm. And you make this thing and your ego is telling you that people need to like it or someone has to publish it or someone has to sign you, whatever. 
But right. the real journey of making it and what you discovered about yourself, like that's for you, right? So I, I just want to yeah. end on that note and ask you on that note, like what did you get for writing the memoir? How was that part of your healing? It's a great point. I, I got a lot out of it too. I got not, not an assurance, but an awareness that um, I moved through this stage. Mm. Like I'm not not recovered as a porn addict. I don't think that's going to happen until I'm in the ground. Mm-hmm. But I know that I'm, I know that by bringing my consciousness to bear on the story of these experiences that I am past them mm-hmm. and I'm not living in the dark anymore. That's at a minimum. I am certain of that. <laughs> and that I, you know, and that I, I'm reassured that I have the tools now to keep my consciousness on what are dangerous behaviors for me and mm-hmm. and how to stay out of trouble that way going forward and not return. Well, I'm just really grateful of you for coming here and giving us a crumb of your experience. <laughs> I mean, you could easily go on about this for a while. Yeah. Um, and for people to learn more about your experience, I want them to, to get to get a hold of your writings any way they can. So I would love um, that. <laughs> I give them that info, but thank you for being here. Thank you, Louise. Thanks for all you do as well. Um, It's a wonderful addition to this world, no doubt. Thank you. That's so sweet. Thank you. So in conclusion of today's episode, um, I asked Ben to read an excerpt from his his memoir. And um, I love the piece that he he picked from it because it really um, defines and explains the experience of existing without your regulator, okay? And if there's anything that I hope you you gained from this episode, it's that whatever substance or behavior an individual is addicted to, what they're getting from that substance or behavior is a sense of safety, a sense of regulation, a sense of um, wholeness, And I say sense because it's sensory. It feels like wholeness. It feels like safety. It feels like regulation until you metabolize it. So if it's a food or a drug or a behavior that releases endorphins or hormones, once those foods or hormones or substances are metabolized by your body, then you lose the regulation you lose the safety, you lose the sense of self and the wholeness. And that's why self-regulation, which we get from healthy co-regulation and building our sense of self and our connection to ourselves, that's the sustainable way to feel safe in this world. And that's the antidote for addiction, learning how to find safety in yourself. So you're not looking outward toward a behavior or a person or a substance, or even a condition like a paycheck or an award for belonging and safety. So let's, let's hear his excerpt for a moment from his memoir. His memoir is titled, Lucky Not to Be Destroyed. Chapter 7, I Die. Dedicated to a monk-like abstinence, I go six weeks with no pornography. But the year starts ominously, 
January 2nd, during the night, my wife wakes me saying, are you all right? In the morning, she tells me she dreamt I was dead. I feel dead. Mentally, I'm aware. But what I'm conscious of is a deadness woven into my days like white fat marbling a steak. I drink coffee, and I'm not quite drinking it. The moment I swallow, I'm thirsty. And in fact, when I put the mug down, a wave effect fatigue passes over me. I reach for a fifth cookie from a Christmas tin, and while I taste cinnamon and sugar, I'm no less hungry. In short, nothing sates me. When I think about it, nothing is really serving its purpose or having its intended effect. Yes, my nerves are soothed after I chew nicotine gum. I'm cleaner after a shower and mildly alert after a workout. But I don't feel very much different than if I'd gone without any of these things. That is, I feel almost nothing in all cases. This, I figure, is what it's like to be dead. Existence keeps going without involving you. Hmm. You know, what's so powerful to me about how that ends, existence keeps going without involving you. Think about that and then think about what we spoke in about in Ben's interview, about how he, he didn't feel like he belonged in the club of men, right? The existence of the, the patriarchy or the, the male club or the tribe of men just going on without involving you. What's really special about those words he wrote, as poignant as they are, is they reflect his exact somatic experience of his childhood, not feeling like he belonged, particularly in his case as a man. And so to not be using the regulator for him, which was porn, masturbation, the endorphins, that that auto-regulatory sense of predictability and safety and guarantee, right? For him to not be using that is going to take his body back to the physical experience of what all those traumatic events and ruptures felt like growing up. His body now, you know, as a 30-some-year-old man, I believe, when he wrote this, is, is... is experiencing what he experienced as an eight-year-old boy, as a 12-year-old in the locker room. That's profound. And that's the piece that's so important with somatic healing when you start uh, working on addiction somatically. When you let go of the addictive substance, what we all call withdrawal, is really the body sober enough to experience what it's been putting off experiencing since the traumatic event took place. So it's like an avalanche of sensation and emotion and belief just hitting you really hard. And on top of that, the body is actually withdrawing from addictive substances and hormones. And even in his case, though it wasn't a substance being ingested, the, the hormonal experience and the developing in that hormonal experience throughout his teenage years and through his 20s created an actual withdrawal when he stopped watching porn. He felt shaky, he felt grumpy, he felt sick, he felt tired. The body is so incredible 
at storing and holding these experiences of trauma. And so that last line, existence going on without involving you, it's a powerful statement from his body of what it must have felt like as a child. And that's the opportunity when we get triggered, when we withdraw, when we become sober, we have this opportunity to feel what was not able to be felt when we were younger because we don't have the capacity as children. And then through the act of the addiction, we're actually um, pausing, limiting our capacity, building. Because when we hit a place of intolerance, we go straight to the behavior or substance to regulate us. So we don't build the capacity in our own nervous systems to self-regulate. So that's the journey of any individual who has trauma, unresolved trauma, I should say, who has PTSD, who has addiction, is how do I start building the capacity within myself to actually be able to exist in a world that's very difficult for me. For more information on Ben's work, you can go to aspiringwritersyndrome.com. What a wonderful title. <laughs> and you can follow him at Instagram at Aspiring Writer Syndrome. Thank you so much for listening. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath and just notice, what's your body doing right now? Sit with it. Let it speak to you. And let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. For more information on my work, including my online courses and healing circles, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, where I share weekly philosophies and resources to help you release stress and trauma from your body so that you can live a happier life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time.